This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, August 3rd. I'm Robert Bluey. And I'm Virginia Allen. Rob, you know, it's so hard to believe that we are already in August, but here we are and we're kicking off the month with a really timely conversation with Klon Kitchen, director of the Heritage Foundation's Center for Technology Policy. Kitchen explains what information Chinese hackers stole from America regarding a COVID-19 vaccine and whether or not any of our information is safe on social media platforms. We also share your letters to the editor, and we have a good news story about a mom who won a little money playing the lottery, but decided to give it all to a Kansas City police officer who was recently shot in the line of duty, despite having lost her job during the pandemic. Before we get to today's show, Rob and I want to tell you about an entertaining way to keep up with the news that matters most. The Heritage Foundation's YouTube channel features TV interviews with heritage experts, policy explainers, and videos of Heritage's most recent webinars discussing the economy, COVID-19, and much more. Go ahead and join the more than 150,000 subscribers to the Heritage Foundation's YouTube channel. You can search for the Heritage Foundation on your YouTube app or visit youtube.com slash Heritage Foundation. Stay up to date on the news and information that conservatives need to know. Now stay tuned for today's show, coming up next. We are joined by Klon Kitchen, director of the Heritage Foundation's Center for Technology Policy. Klon, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So a couple of weeks ago, the Department of Justice charged two Chinese nationals with trying to steal America's COVID-19 vaccine research and a lot of other information, both from government, businesses, and even individuals. What do we know about how much information that those hackers were actually able to steal? So on that specific case, uh, we don't know a whole lot just because it's part of um, some sealed DOJ documents as as it regards the indictments. Uh, But what we know more broadly is that a a number of nations, China being one of the most aggressive, are uh, actively going after U.S. research centers, actually U.S. and European and and, and other research centers, trying to um, get access to research data associated with vaccine development for the COVID-19. And um, yeah, it's a it's a real challenge. And while we don't think that it's intended to somehow you know manipulate or or, or make U.S. vaccine development somehow more dangerous, it's it is likely just focused on them trying to develop their own vaccines. It does slow down the process because time and energy and resources are now being dedicated towards security that might otherwise be dedicated to uh, research. Okay. Okay. That's interesting to hear that connection. So, you know, I'm, I'm no cybersecurity expert. So when I hear those words, hack or terabytes of information stolen, I, I understand that that's a national security threat, but could you just explain a little bit more broadly uh, what the severity of, you know, China's cyber attacks really are as far as being a threat to America? How, how serious should we be thinking of these? Well, so our national cybersecurity posture is decisively important, right? In in the modern age, uh, securing the nation means securing networks. And there is no more aggressive or capable adversary than China. Now, they're certainly not the only one. Russia, North Korea, Iran, others certainly demonstrate very real capability, all of which has to be... um, protected against. 
But China is um, is especially sophisticated. They have a very broad effort. Uh, they uh, target everything from you know intelligence and military defense related information to all kinds of corporate and economic espionage targets uh, to uh, academic and research institutions. And uh, they have proven themselves to be adept at not only getting that information, but then leveraging that information and creating their own domestic equivalents of our own companies and technical capabilities, but then also using that information to target, you know, politicians and, and you know, individual citizens for, you know, manipulation or blackmail. And how does China's activity online against America and other nations work within its larger strategy? I mean, how important is is hacking for China's kind of larger goals regarding the U.S. maybe? Well, it's a, it's a fundamental capability. So it is um, it's decisive because it, one, is a primary means of gaining access to information that is otherwise withheld from them. But, you know, if they didn't have cyber means, then they would have to figure out some type of like physical way of gaining access uh, to this information or having it brought to them by, you know, some type of human spy or something like that. But with a cyber capability, that gives them essentially global access um, to, um, to all this information. Two, it provides a level of deniability uh, it is often very difficult to do attribution on cyber activity, and even when you can do it because of particular sources and methods, we're not always quick to, to publicly ascribe blame uh, because that could ultimately expose our own kind of capabilities. So it's, it's a really attractive capability with relatively low risk. So President Trump has taken actions against China in recent weeks from, you know, increasing sanctions in various ways to closing uh, the Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas. Do you think there are other actions that he should be taking against China or the administration should be taking against China right now? Well, over just the last uh, two weeks or so, we've seen actually a pretty systematic effort against China uh, using some of the things that you identified in terms of uh, sanctioning uh, the indictments that we were talking about earlier. Uh, there's some impending decisions on uh, the TikTok social media app, which is owned by a Chinese company, ByteDance. Uh, we've seen actions on Huawei, uh, the Chinese telecommunications company, where we have, the United States has convinced some of the world's leading microchip suppliers not to provide that company with microchips uh, because they operate on behalf of the Chinese state. And so there's a, there's a whole host of actions that I would like to see I'd like to see that screw continue to get turned because the goal isn't just to be mean or punish China. The goal is actually to compel them to assume a different posture, a posture that is more uh, proactive and fruitful in engaging with the West so that we can both engage with one another in a way where we thrive and where we're not, um, you know, kind of face to face and stealing things. Hmm. So you mentioned TikTok. Uh, it's a very popular app, especially mm. among young people. And Trump has actually said that he he might consider banning that app in America because of security concerns. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, should should the app actually be banned? Yeah. So the the security concerns are essentially undeniable, and that's the case because China has laws, uh, cybersecurity laws, and national security laws that require any Chinese company, even one operating here in the United States, uh, to make available to the Chinese government any and all data that they collect. So 
any information that that TikTok collects on U.S. users under Chinese law must be made available to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, that's a big problem. And uh, it, it's a problem that actually extends well beyond TikTok to essentially every Chinese company. And we're really struggling with that. Uh, I suspect that here in the next few days, we are likely to get an announcement of some type of action against TikTok. That action could be some type of a ruling from the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, sometimes called CFIUS, uh, or the White House may choose to put TikTok on the entities list uh, as it did with Huawei and ZTE. So I don't use TikTok, but I have a lot of friends that do, family members that do. Should, should for listeners who have it, or maybe their kids have it, should they get off? I mean, is it, you know, a really that much of a, you know, danger or threat if you're just kind of posting funny, silly videos? Well, I mean, I would certainly get off and I would certainly encourage others to get off. But I mean, what if the concern isn't that the Chinese government is going to get your, um, you know, your, your silly dance videos, right? Nobody's really worried about that. It's the reams and reams and reams of other data that the app collects. So, so TikTok collects uh, what we call telemetry data. It collects your uh, GPS position. It collects your contacts. It collects your online viewing habits. So it knows who your family is, it knows where you live, it knows where you've been, it knows where you're likely going. It has the content of the videos itself, which means that they can do voice analysis and video facial recognition and all kinds of other stuff. And all of that information is getting dumped into large data pools back in China and then commingled with other data that they're stealing and used for, you know, who knows what. I mean, I can speculate on a whole host of ways that that can be used that, that Americans wouldn't like. But the point is, is that, um, by law, that's happening. And uh, right now, U.S. users are voluntarily providing all of that information to TikTok. Wow. Gosh, that's pretty scary, Klon. Um, all right. So I want to switch gears for a second away from China and talk about Twitter. So just a few weeks ago, Twitter had a major security breach uh, in which a hacker or hackers were able uh, to control a number of really high-profile accounts, including that of Elon Musk, Joe Biden, President Trump, a host of others. Uh, and the hacker posted a tweet saying sort of something along the lines of, hey, I'm feeling generous. If you send uh, money to this Bitcoin account, I'll send you back double whatever you send. Well, you know, a handful of people fell for this. Uh, but in in retrospect, this was a pretty small scam compared to what it could have been. So I guess this kind of ultimately raises the question of can we trust Twitter or I guess any other social media platform uh, with our information? Yeah, so uh, the interesting thing about the, the hack on Twitter here recently was you're right. This was a little bit like stealing a Ferrari to listen to the radio. <laughs> uh, the, the fact that they tried to pull a, a, a Bitcoin scam, I think they ended up collecting about $185,000 um, but what they were able to do in terms of gaining access to what's called verified accounts, these are accounts that Twitter, you know, they have the little blue check and they do that. Twitter does that so that users can essentially know that, Hey, this is the verified account. So when it says that this is the, the Twitter account of Donald J. Trump, it's the Twitter account for Donald J. Trump by kind of doing what they've done, they've undermined that whole verification model. This was a big deal, and, and we're going to keep hearing more about 
this particular hack as more information comes out. But one of the net outcomes of this is that as we enter the 2020 election cycle in earnest, it just further undermines the legitimacy and reliability of online information. Uh, at the point where verified accounts on Twitter, uh, you know, can no longer be trusted uh, as being from the people they they purport to be from, it's just a, it's just another kick in in trustworthy news online, and uh, that's going to be a problem for us. So, in other words, you're saying that we could see, you know, we could see the the election in November potentially impacted by things like Twitter hacks by people, you know, putting up information that might be inaccurate or, or saying, you know, this person is is polling well or, or this one isn't uh, and and affecting the way that people vote. Well, so what I'm saying is, is there's going to be a lot of that kind of activity, uh, undoubtedly. The the barriers to entry are so low that, that foreign actors and, and other malicious actors, it, it's just too attractive a target and too low a cost for them not to do it. And so there's going to be a lot of, of, of uh, foreign influence activity online, and there already is. The impact that has on people's actual voting uh, remains to be seen. Typically, people are pretty locked in, and they orient themselves on news that kind of supports that going in position. And, and there's not a whole lot of information that supports radical changes in people's viewpoints, but they can still be misled. And, uh, and and that's a problem. We saw that in 2016. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned 2016. And in the 2016 election, uh, it was affected by emails, both hacked and leaked. So, so far, you know, we, we haven't seen that for 2020. But do you think that security is better than it used to be? And, you know, that we, we won't see that kind of email hacking again? Or do you think that there's a chance that, you know, with this election, we might see kind of that, those same tactics taken? So I think two things. One, security is better. And two, there's no doubt in my mind that we're going to see the same type of activity. Uh, I think at the end of this election, um, regardless of who wins, both candidates are going to have enough of a reason to claim some type of legitimate interference that it's going to make the outcome very messy. And if the voting outcome isn't decisively one way, and it's really close, it's going to be even harder. But even if it is decisive one way, uh, there will still be enough activity, bad guy activity online to where people are going to have legitimate claims of, uh, of manipulation. And that's just, that's why we've been saying for four years that this has to be addressed and it has to be changed. And is it being aggressively addressed and changed? In some quarters, yes. But at the end of the day, I think we have to recognize that we have not fundamentally changed the calculus of nations like Russia and China. Uh, and what we have seen just from a pure metric standpoint is an increase in activity along these lines from Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, uh, and even some individual hacking syndicates. So um, there's been a lot of effort. There's no doubt about it. Uh, whether that effort is sufficient, I think, is um, still very much in question. So how do we as American citizens go about protecting our information online? Yeah, there are some very basic things um, that an individual can do. And in fact, um, James DePayne uh, and I have just kicked out a recent paper on basic cybersecurity. 
uh, where we discuss this, and and that can be found on the on the Heritage website. But you know, the simple things are one: be careful what you say and do online. You know, just remember that when you post to Facebook that picture of your family vacation, you've just told all of the people who can see your profile that you're away from your home and out of town, and you know somebody can drop by and visit if they want. Be careful if you're dropping your kids and your grandkids' names, uh, and, and and you know their birthdays and things like that. You know that type of information can be accumulated, and and all kinds of insights can be uh, drawn from it. Uh, two. Uh, especially in light of the, the Twitter hack, turn on what's called two-factor authentication or 2FA. It's where you have to provide a second method of verifying that you are, in fact, the person who's trying to log into uh, your account. That's a great way to kind of push bad guys a little further out and not make it easy for them. Uh, and then finally, uh, another easy thing to do is start using a password manager. There's a host of those out there. Essentially what it is is you only have to remember one password and then the password manager manages everything else. Uh, it's a great way to have strong passwords without having to have a super memory. And uh, those are often uh, free or very cheap. And uh, I would recommend everybody adopt those practices. So what are the, the cybersecurity issues that you're kind of looking at, that you're tracking and following right now that you recommend listeners also keep their eye on moving forward? Mm. Well, so one of the, the awesome and... Uh, and challenging things about what we're doing at the Center for Technology Policy Heritage is it's, it's pretty audacious. We're, we're trying to look at tech policy comprehensively and from an interdisciplinary uh, perspective. So we're looking at everything from, of course, tech competition with China, which involves everything from you know, market dynamics to uh, cybersecurity and foreign policy uh, and even uh, human rights. Uh, but we're also looking at, you know, the, earlier this week, we, we had um, the tech CEOs before Congress talking about antitrust, and we're looking at those issues. We're also looking at facial recognition technologies and the government's use of those capabilities and what legal constraints might be necessary for that type of activity. So all of those things are things that are um, really important to individual citizens. They're really important in the policy space, and they are taking uh, a great deal of our attention at the CTP. Kwan, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer healthcare choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show. Virginia, who do you have first? In response to last week's Problematic Women podcast interview with Abigail Schreier on the transgender movement's effect on teenage girls, Sam writes, this is a tactic that Marxists and communists have used for years, destroy the family core by going to the source, the children. Our education has been infiltrated and this didn't happen in a day. Wake up, America. And in response to our recent interview with Larry Elder, the producer of Uncle Tom, Stephen Rubin writes, Today, after listening to your interview with Mr. Elder, I felt finally that there is a world out there that feels as I do. The interview was incredible. I was extremely impressed with both of you. 
Thank you for taking the time to share Mr. Elder's story with me and us. I now feel like I have tons of information, factual information, which will allow me to stand straighter and prouder than ever before. I hope and pray that both of you continue to be voices for the logical, learned, and studied Americans who truly believe that it is time to publicly expose the truth. Well, thank you, Stephen. We appreciate your note. Your letter could be featured on next week's show. So send us an email at letters at dailysignal.com. Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Virginia, you have a good news story to share with us today. Over to you. Thanks so much, Rob. We've probably all dreamed about winning the lottery, even just a little bit of money. Shatara Sim lost her job during the pandemic. She was down to $7 in her bank account, and she bought a scratch-off ticket in hopes of winning a little bit of money, which she did, $100 to be exact. But Sim's 12-year-old daughter, Rakaya Edmondson suggested to her mom that they should not keep the money for themselves, but donate it to a local Kansas City police officer who was recently shot in the line of duty. Sim agreed right away and anonymously called the police department and donated the money. But the Kansas City department was determined to find and thank Sim and her daughter for their generosity, which they did. But they didn't just stop there. The police department set up a GoFundMe campaign for the mother, which has raised more than $150,000. Rakaya and her mom joined Fox News about a week ago to explain why they so readily donated to the injured officer despite their own financial need. Because I knew if we weren't, if my mom wasn't working and we didn't have like enough money to drive around, I knew that his family wouldn't because he's not working right now. Sim told Fox, I know the police have been there for me, but that was such a selfless act for my daughter and I didn't want to change that. I wanted her to continue to be as she is. In an interview with KMBC News, Sim explained that Rakaya's older sister was killed in Kansas City in 2012. The police and detectives were such an incredible support to their whole family. The detectives were really there for us. They were there for us more than anyone I can imagine. They did things they did not have to do, Sim said. Wow, this is just incredible. It's, it's amazing to see uh, not only the generosity that was freely given, but that was really given out of a place of need. That certainly challenges me. And, you know, Rob, I think that is truly what community looks like. It sure is, Virginia, and I'm so glad that you highlighted that. We need a strong civil society in our country, particularly in challenging times like this. And I think too often we look to Washington or we look to government for all of the answers when in many cases they're right next door or right in your own community. So thank you for bringing us that story. It is truly inspiring. And for anyone who wants to donate to Sim and her daughter, Rakaya, I will be sure to leave that link to the GoFundMe page in today's show notes. 
That's great. Well, thanks for sharing, Virginia. And we're going to leave it there for today. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on the Ricochet Audio Network. All of our shows can be found at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Signal podcast as part of your Alexa flash briefing. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It means a lot to us, and it helps us spread the word to other listeners. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. Have a great week. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Rob Bluey and Virginia Allen. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.